Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 416. And today I'm joined by the one Edgar Wright. I know a lot of you have been waiting for this. Me and Edgar have been waiting for this. Genuinely, me and Edgar have been talking about doing this. We talked about doing it just when the Ant-Man stuff was all kicking off, but he kind of said at that point, we can't really talk about any of that. So it'd be a really awkward conversation. Then we were going to do it when was it when baby driver came out maybe definitely we talked about it when the sparks documentary came out but these things all all happen for a reason and we ended up doing it as his new film last night in soho comes out this week i've seen it it blew me away i think it might be my favorite edgar wright film now do i include the cornetto trilogy in that they're obviously key they feel like a standalone thing, but I'm, it, I'm, it might be my favourite Edgar Wright film. I ain't kidding. It, I really, really enjoyed it. And you'll hear it in this conversation. There's certain things that just really struck all the right chords f- for me. But we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about London. We talk about the weirdness of being almost f- finished on a film when suddenly a global pandemic hits. We talk about the difference, the split of London and America. We talk about Sparks. So we talk about music, we talk about a whole load of things, and you're going to adore it. Um, And then I'm going to heavily encourage you go and see Last Night in Soho. Obviously, I also recommend you see Venom 2, which I'm in at the moment and is also in the cinemas. But equally, Venom 2's already had the best opening weekend since pre-pandemic, so it's all going all right there. Um, So I highly recommend last night at Soho which I reckon will have a a huge opening weekend as well because it's so damn good um yeah as ever we're we're brought to you by speechdevelopmentrecords.com that's where you can get my merch as said the white limited edition distraction pieces vinyl is out there at the moment it looks beautiful couldn't be happier with that and you can head to patreon.com forward slash scroobius pip if you want in on any of the uh the patreon type business but for now this is episode 400 and oh in fact if this is your first time tuning in previous guests include simon Pegg and nick frost adam buxton maybe adam buxton twice adam buxton twice joe cornish uh paddy considine i'm I'm literally trying to think through um exclusively people edgar's worked with there's going to be more than that but i'm hitting a wall now so so forget it but loads of really good people loads of the this is england lot you're looking at stephen graham you're looking at joe gilgan yeah just a lot of really good people over the years um and people like mary j blige and james mcavoy and vicky mcclure and kathy burke lena heady uh yeah just loads of really really good people so go and have a look in the back catalogue but for now as said this is episode 416 of the distraction pieces podcast at last with the one Edgar Wright. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. And we're right in. I love it. Hello. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Excited to. S- see your lovely face i know i feel like this this appearance has been 10 years in the making or something right yeah it really does there's been so many points where we've gone 
well, maybe now isn't the right time. And then other points where it was the right time, but we couldn't make it work. So I'm delighted to have you have you on on for a little chat. Oh, but before we get into it, like, how are you? The last time I saw you was just before the world came to an end at Simon's uh, 50th, which oh, I, yeah. I've spoken to, to Simon about that. I think that maybe... He was patient uh, zero? Uh, no, the... the, the he, yeah, he, he kind of... The fact that he brought together such an insane mix of people is what caused the world to go, no, 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 no. <laughs> we need to reboot. <laughs> This whole socialising thing has gone too far. Yeah, it seemed it was, to be. It was good. It felt like, the, yeah, it did feel like a bit like uh, the end of times party. If that was the last birthday party you ever went yeah. to. Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, sure. Yeah. This is the pinnacle of birthday parties. This is how it's got to. But uh, like, how have you been, man, over this, this, as said, incredibly strange period? Well, um, I guess it's been a bit of an emotional journey as it is for everybody else. Just, I mean... I had to stop working on the film and and go home, which is a very odd, a very odd kind of feeling to sort of leave the edit and go back home and pack yeah. up what stuff I needed in in less than twenty minutes, and then go back home and and not come back into work for like six months. That was very strange. That must so, be is g- g- genuine question. Have you ever done that before? No, because I know no. you're someone who's constantly working and new, new ideas on the go. That must have been a real change to go right actually we're just kind of paused because it's not even as if you can jump onto the the next thing because you're midway through the current thing yeah i mean i couldn't physically finish soho because we were about to do some additional shooting mm-hmm. i think in a way i was more terrified that universal would say ah don't worry about it just wrap, wrap it up as it is and yeah. we'll get it out there but they, they didn't do that but Great. i think the one thing that it afforded me not that anything good came out of the pandemic and i don't want to be misquoted as suggesting it did but the one the one thing i could do is i could finish the sparks documentary which that one i was able to do by remote with the editor because at that point we we'd shot everything and it was just a matter of editing it so i sort of did that when i was at home he'd be pinging me edits and i'd be making notes and just but it was it was weird being just i live in central london and I don't live far away from Soho. So the odd thing in terms of the movie I've just made was then being left with like a film that wasn't quite finished in a deserted <laughs> ghostly Soho, <laughs> which just sort of seemed like it was just a um, very ironic turn of events. And, and and in fact, one of the things about that, um, and this isn't a spoiler at all, but in the end credits of Last Night in Soho, yes. there are these shots of empty Soho which we shot during the pandemic and and that only came about because I do live centrally and I had walked around and I had seen it for myself and it was a very a very strange experience to be in a deserted London and see see the one part of London that is genuinely 24-7 utterly deserted was a very humbling and sad experience. That must have been bizarre as you say because you've gone from an extended period where you're g- going through great stress and cost to get like a street empty for a few hours to t- t- shoot and this like to try and use this this landscape as a set and then you walk out it's like oh here it all is here it is in its in its bareness well it's funny i mean i'm i was glad we were able to document it in the way that we did because it feels like a little bittersweet epitaph in a strange way yeah. i mean what's that thing at the start of the lockdown 
that everybody was making the same joke on social media saying, wow, you know, if you're an independent filmmaker, you better get out of there and make your pandemic horror film now or your dystopian film. And I was thinking to myself, hey, you know what? When this is over, the last thing people are going to want to watch is a dystopian pandemic horror film. I mean, that said, A Quiet Place 2 still did very well. Like you would, you would, you would think, and that was a great movie, but I, I wondered aloud at one point of thinking, oh, is this, is this what people are going to want to see afterwards? But they did. But yeah. I don't know if I want to watch too many pandemic movies. No, I completely agree. I think Jack Thorne wrote that help mm-hmm. with Stevie Graham and Jodie Comer. And that was, again, it was exactly on the money, on the button, on the nose, but I don't need much more than that. Like It's kind of like, right, let's not have everything have to have it, it written into, you know? Well, I like a lot of people, I rewatched Contagion because yeah. I had seen it at the cinema at the time. In fact, I saw it with Simon Pegg in Los Angeles. And I remember thinking, we watched it at the Cinerama Dome. And I remember that during the screening, somebody behind us sneezed. And I said to Simon, I said, that was great. I said, but the scariest bit was when that guy behind us sneezed. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny. I mean, you know, it's... it's the original 4Ds... A cinema experience you're getting sneezes yeah, around you sneezing in our faces so there was, was that yeah. um yeah it was i mean it was it's obviously when you see like a city shut down and because the center of london is not that residential it really cleared out and for a long time and then and then it came back a little bit and then again around christmas when there was the second shot shut down after halloween mm-hmm. That was even weirder because I remember particularly standing on Regent Street on a Saturday in December and it being utterly empty. And I was thinking, yeah. wow, 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 this is wild. I mean, I did do that thing where once, I, you know, this first couple of months when everybody was very anxious about what exactly it all means, nobody's really clear exactly how airborne it is and how contagious it is. And could you just get it by walking out of the flat? Yeah. I mean, it's a strange thing is that the one thing I would do on a pretty much daily basis is go to the Sainsbury's near me. There's like a Sainsbury's and Tesco's near me that like were open throughout. And I just thought of all the times for things to go to the, all the checkouts to go to touch pads. I said, yeah. why, why now? Like, it's like, that's the thing. It's literally like they said, hey, we have no people working here. It's on you. Use this touchpad. <laughs> it's like, yeah. At your own the risk. The last thing I want to do is use the touchpad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and let's talk about, I, I mean, I do want to talk about the Sparks documentary as, as well, but, but I need to start with talking about Last Night in Soho because... I absolutely adored it, mate. I thought it was so good. And I'm going to be careful not to spoil anything or reveal anything. Basically, anything more that's in the trailers okay, is, sure. is 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 my thinking. But first things first, it was beautiful to see Soho on the screen again. The The obvious one that came to mind was Absolute Beginners for their depiction of, of Soho. But Small World of Sammy Lee also was one yeah. that was just so... The, the franticness at points of Soho in Last Night in Soho, it, it, it reminded me of that and it, it excited me. It made me kind of go, why hasn't this been the, a location for, for every film? It's so good. Well, I think the honest answer, and this is sort of the one of, one of the many reasons for doing it, was that there was it's a challenge to do it because the reason people don't shoot in Soho is because it is genuinely 24-7. Yeah. And you know, you are not completely in control of, of the city. You, you know, you can close roads sometimes, and but you can only politely 
ask people not to walk through the shops. Yeah. And yeah. I think the thing is, is that like it's worth stating out loud, but all of the Soho scenes are shot in Soho. Yeah. So we didn't shoot anything in other locations doubling for Soho. And, you know, interiors are sometimes on stages, but all the exteriors are exactly where they are, whether they're modern Soho or 60s Soho. So that yeah. then is some of the most ambitious shots in the movie is shooting real Soho and making it into the 60s, which in a couple of the dream sequences that happens. And yeah. those, are, those are like really ambitious shots to pull off on a location basis and production design. And then just the, you know, the practicalities of actually shooting it. And, you know, like there's this, there's the shot where Thomas and Mackenzie first walks into the 60s and crosses Haymarket and lots of period cars and extras, yeah, which we shot for real, like in Haymarket. The real Cafe de Paris is just around the corner, but we used the Haymarket to double for it because it was a wider road and it could give us more approach to the cinema and the Cafe de Paris entrance. Yeah. And then there's another shot later on, which I'm really proud of, where Matt Smith drives Anya Taylor-Joy up Frith Street and onto Bateman Street and Parks and Greek Street, which we all shot for real. And I think actually early on, if somebody had said in production, hey, there's no way we can shoot in the real Soho. We have to go to like somewhere else and double Soho. I probably wouldn't have done the movie at all, to be honest. It was just, yeah. I felt like, unless I can do it for real, I my interest in it like suddenly plummets. And some of those previous movies, I mean, Absolute Beginners is an interesting one because like uh, another great Soho film, Espresso Bongo, in both of those cases, they built like a Soho set. Yeah, yeah. So the Absolute Beginners set and Espresso Bongo both sort of basically recreated Old Compton Street on a stage. Yeah. And, um, and I think sort of absolute beginners, like all of the Soho night stuff is on a stage. And then there are some real locations like they weirdly, they use the real Cafe de Paris in that film. And we used a set. We built a Cafe de Paris. Yeah. In that film. And Swan Word of Sammy Lee has some amazing shots of Anthony Newley running up and down Berwick Street Market and Water Street. Yeah. Which it really looks like they just shot out of the back of a van. <laughs> just oh, I was going to say, <laughs> I, I, I saw last night in, in, in Soho on Tuesday, and since the, then it's made me come back and re-watch Absolute Beginners and Small World of Sammy Lee. And you, there is is that big difference be, between the stuff that's really shot there. And this, again, the, make no mistake, the set of Absolute Beginners is just amazing. Like It's literally, like, I know that shop, I know that shop, it's... It's wonderful, but it, you can see that it's a it's a oh, it's, stage it's, set, and it makes a difference. Yeah, I, I guess in that film as well, he he's like harking back to the films of that time of like the fifties and sixties. When yeah. you actually look at them, for the most part, a lot of it is done on the stage. And like some of my favorite ones of that era, like Beat Girl, is a great one, and that has a couple of location shots in it. And then most of the rest of it is on a stage. But then there are sort of key shots, like the end shot of the movie in Beat Girl, is like a wide shot of Old Compton Street in like 1960. Right. And when we were like location scouting, I said to my production designer, I pointed at this window. The, the, if you know Soho well, it's like the first floor window on Slim Chickens. Right, yeah. And I said, that must be the Beat Girl window. I said, that that has to be where they got the shot in Beat Girl because there's no other window to get <laughs> that shot from. So we went up there and looked out and said, oh, yeah, this is the angle. So let's put that in the movie. So you I see that, that the shot where Thomason is going out with her fellow students from the London College of Fashion right at the yeah. start of the movie. I mean, there's some other things that we did. We We sort of, I guess we did a bit of both in the approach because... 
we we shot in Soho for real and we recreated the 60s in Soho for real. Then we did stage stuff for the interiors. So all the club interiors and stages and yeah. particularly the Café de Paris, which I think is a, an amazing set that Marcus Rowland did. And that was because you can film in the real Café de Paris, but it was it ended up just being cheaper to build it. And then right. we had complete control. And in yeah. that particular sequence, there's a lot of fancy choreography and interesting things going on, which would have been much more challenging to do on location. It's, but, it's, it's, it's one of the, the scenes I noted that just had me smiling from ear to ear because the switches and the tricks and the everything being played in that in that first dance sequence and stuff was just it's beautiful. It's so good to see because you could, yeah, when there's, obviously you're going to have to have a lot of, of, of trickery in this because as you see from the tra- tra- trailers, you're merging two eras, there's mirrors, there's all sorts, but the points when you can tell it's just really carefully choreographed and there's switches and changes is, yeah. Well, that excites me. That's the thing is that in that particular sequence and sort of throughout the film, we do use every trick in the book for the mirror stuff. And, and very occasionally, I think people just assume that everything is done with green screen these days, but it, yeah. it's not not the case. And actually, there's a couple of shots which are like motion control shots, but there's no sort of green screen really. But what, what there is, is sometimes it's deceptively simple. Deceptively simple in terms of how it's done, but then the complicated bit is just the choreography and that rehearsal. Yeah. So literally like the shot in the trailer where Anya and Thomasin are opposite each other in the mirror, in the lobby of the Cafe de Paris, the first time you see Anya, what you're looking at there is a real shot. Like they're, they are opposite each other. So in a way it's almost like a 21st century update of the duck soup scene. Yeah. It's like, they're looking at each other. So what are the, what are the, what are then what are the clever bits going on there? There's lots of sort of extra cleverness going on, such as double sets, identical twins playing maitre d's, things like a, a real mirror that slides back. If you look at the start of the shot, Thomason is in the mirror along with the other maitre d. And then when he crosses in front of the camera, a mirror slides back. Maybe I'm revealing too much. No, I love it. I didn't say that because like some people, when they realize how it was done, it starts to blow their head off even more. Because they're thinking, oh, wow, that sounds really complicated. Because it's it's, it's easier to just accept it's probably some kind of of green screen or camera trickery when there's genuine... The The thing is, is I think sort of increasingly in this day and age, people use VFX as a crutch. And sometimes not mentioning any names, it's like a lack of imagination in the sense of they either can't think or probably more <laughs> or, or can't be bothered to sort of do some of it for real. Yeah. And there is a thing on a lot of like, you know, big special effects movies where, you know, the, the directors and the actors are sort of just shooting their bits of exposition on green screen. And somebody says, oh, you know, the VFX wizards will figure the rest out. Yeah. So when it gets to the point when you're green screening people sitting down at a table in a cafe, you think we, we've gone too far. You yeah. can do this for real and save money doing it. Like, yeah. um, so I think the thing is, if I try to do as much of it in camera as possible. And, and sometimes it's just all in camera. Like um, the dance sequence in the Cafe de Paris, apart from one particular bit, is all in camera. And it's all your it. choreography. And it's down to you know, the actors being able to pull off the choreography, which is by Jennifer White, which was amazing. And then the other key thing is like, you have to rehearse with the camera operator. We had this amazing steady cam operator called Chris Baines, 
And he just has to be in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. So then it becomes a dance between four people, Matt Smith, Anya Taylor-Joy, Thomas McKenzie, and the camera operator. He's got to be in the right place at the right time. And the thing is, is that once you, obviously you've got to rehearse the shit out of those things. And we, you know, did it in a, in a town hall. I think we, we first, we first rehearsed it in like Acton town hall. No, not Acton, Ealing town hall. Um, Cause we were around the corner from Ealing studios. We rehearsed, re- rehearsed it in Ealing town hall. Then we had like a, a Saturday rehearsal. I think weirdly enough, it was like Anya Taylor Joy's first day on set. Cause she comes straight from the set of Emma. And her first day actually on set was rehearsing that dance number. Man. There is an amazing video, which hopefully will be on the, the Blu-ray or on the extras eventually, where there's like a dress rehearsal for that shot, where it's super, super slick. Aside from the fact they're all like kind of half, it's like they're wearing mufti. It's like they're sort of half dressed. Yeah. And is that in itself, it's still like the, the shot and the choreography is really slick, other than that the actors are sort of haven't had their hair done and stuff. And it's 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 beautiful in its own right. How 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 much of that stuff is is what drives you and, and keeps you excited? I've on in, in one of my music videos, I've got a song called Stunner and I I directed it. I'd 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 love doing one shots for a few different music videos. And there was a scene in that where we just found I just got a double. I knew someone who looked near it. And again, it's amazing how much the mind won't question it. Like the double we got was a good four or five inches shorter than me. But for that moment, the switch we needed off camera, that was the buzz of the day and the buzz of the shoot of when we knew we'd nailed it, that one little switch and turn, it's it makes it all the more exciting. Yeah, I think it's like one of the things is it kind of, um, it allows you to suspend, you know, disbelief in a way because you're watching something magical happening in front of your eyes. So mm-hmm. especially in, in, in a film at that particular point where, you know, you, you we're into something new in, in the movie in terms of Eloise has gone back in time in her dreams and is now seeing somebody else in the mirror and then they switch places. And that's, that's a very magical, fantastical concept. When you present it in an unbroken take, I think the audience just goes with it a lot more mm. because they're just that you were you were guiding them, and I think that's the thing. So it's 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 not just the it's not kind of hopefully it doesn't just look like it's kind of show off camera moves. It's more like the longer you can keep this happening for real in front of your eyes with no kind of like hidden trickery. Yeah, you know that you're you're basically just keeping literally keeping the magic alive, and and that continued into the sort of the next scene and then later scenes in the movie where, you know, the fact that some people come out of the film and they don't quite know how things are done is good. Because yeah. I think, I think with a lot of other like really big effects films where you just, I, I just get kind of a bit tired of, um, I don't really, I don't want to mention any names. I don't want to be slagging anything off, especially, especially post pandemic where yeah. any schadenfreude I had for like franchises that I don't really care for has gone out of the window because any, any film that's a hit at the cinema is good as yeah. good as far as I'm concerned. However, like there are definitely things where you see a lot of special effects in stunts these days. And I'm just like, yeah, sure. I mean, you could do anything. I, mean, yeah. I find it more impressive when you watch as a, an actor or a stuntman really doing something. Yeah. It's why kind of Tom Cruise in the Mission Impossible films is he's sort of taken on the mantle of Buster Keaton and Jackie Chan of yeah. the weirdly like there's nothing more impressive in Mission Impossible Fallout to me than watching Tom Cruise shimmy up a rope. Because <laughs> yeah. I, 
I'm watching that and thinking like, hey, I can't do that. Not a chance. <laughs> I certainly can't do that hundreds of feet in the air. Yeah. And repeatedly, t- and repeatedly. time after time after time. <laughs> um, yeah. But in, to answer your question, though, coming up with ideas that you don't really know how you can pull them off or whether you can pull them off. Mm. It's like a, a deep anxiety, which is also driving you, you know, yeah. because I think at the point where you go to work and you know, I know how to do this. Yeah. We know how to do this. This is easy. That's not a good feeling. That's where complacency sets in or whether you're just kind of delegating the how and why of it to somebody else. That's also not a good feeling. So there were definitely like bits in this movie where you're kind of like, you know, you're setting a high bar for yourself in terms of you're coming up with things that are really tricky to pull off. And some of those location shots where we're really shooting in the middle of Soho, you know, I would come to like work with like, butterf- I mean, I come to work with butterflies in my stomach every day. But on yeah. those days, you're sort of quietly to yourself, your interior monologue is going, mm, I wonder whether this is going to happen. <laughs> like, yeah. If we're going to pull it off today, it seems that there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And so you never share that with the crew because you want to kind of like seem like everything's cool, guys. Yeah, you've got to be like sort of, you know, smooth on the surface, paddling like the devil underneath. But like there are definitely lovely moments where I came to set and I thought, wow, if we pull this off, even I'll be impressed. <laughs> like, yeah, completely. Well, I mean, speaking of, of of coming to work in Soho, I was, I've, I've been on, on set this week. I'm doing a thing with Alice Lowe and she was saying that she spoke to you a few years back and you were saying about an idea about making this film in Soho because you wanted to capture it because it is changing and it is it's it's changing from what it once was so was that a driving force behind this as a project to go I want to I want to show Soho before we don't have Soho anymore if you know what I mean yeah I mean I I guess I didn't think so much about um it was more capturing on screen the london that i spend the most time in yeah which, like a, like you don't see it on screen that often and you know you when you see london on screen it's usually other areas of london or in the center somebody will do a scene with a helicopter landing in trafalgar square or yeah every, every spy movie and superhero movie has that helicopter shot of the gherkin and Tower yep. <laughs> yep of <laughs> course should be, outlawed, out, should be outlawed in trailers now with um, some kind of digital text and info over the in, yes. in one of the corners <laughs> and with the Millennium Bridge to be blown up by Death Eaters and or Magneto and or yeah. uh, Galactus or something like yeah. that. All of that those, leave the Revitems alone. It's already, it's already happened too many times. Yeah. But yeah, it was like seeing modern Soho on screen. But then I guess in a way, it's, it, it, there's like three Sohos. There's the Soho that I live and work in. There's the 90s Soho that I remember when I first moved to London in 1994, which was a lot different. And especially because the red light area was so much bigger and, and, and working in like in London and in Soho, it was so much more in your face in a way that it isn't now, but it hasn't been completely gentrified away. And I I feel like after, after midnight is when the old Soho starts to kind of like, yeah, rise up in a very insidious way there's there's a really good podcast series about Bernie Katz or or oh, yeah. him dying um the prince of of soho and it it really it does a great job of kind of bookmarking and showing those periods and those changes and and how things once were but yeah but it's and then and then beyond that the thing that the movie's about is is this 
you know, sort of strange, like I say strange nostalgia. I mean, sort of what the movie is about is that like, it's almost me sort of examining why I have nostalgia for a decade that I never lived in. And, you know, yeah. I think a lot of people have that. It's like, it's why to me, I don't get so excited about 80s nostalgia because I was there, but I can understand for people born in the 90s that like 80s nostalgia is something interesting in a way that I was born in the 70s. So I find the 60s fascinating. Yeah. But then that's always tempered. And this is sort of what the movie's about is it's dangerous to kind of like, um, it's dangerous to romanticize the past because if you start to do that, then you're falling into that trap of using the phrase, the good old days, which yeah. obviously gets used all over the world and usually in a sort of a, um, in a political sense. And of course there is no perfect decade. There's no, there's no decade where, you know, everything was good and nothing was bad. And then most things that are bad now were even worse then or, or like, exactly the same but not reported and so i thought that was just an interesting thing because it's not like that the information isn't out there and in literature and tv and film at the time but it's that thing as you get further away from it there's that there's that tendency from some to kind of like look back with rose-tinted glasses and even in some ways romanticize the dark side because that certainly happened with the criminal underworld and also i'd say the sex industry of the 50s yeah. So in a way, like the the, the the sort of whole point of the movie is I started to think to myself, why am I spending so much time fantasizing about this decade? I mean, of course, it would be great to be a cultural time traveler and go back and say, wow, wouldn't it be great to be at that gig or to see that show or to see that film and opening weekend? And then the more and more I, you know, that it would obsess me, I'd start to think, am I thinking about this decade so much? because I'm failing to deal with modern life or it's, it's a refusal to deal with modern life. And I think that's unfortunately it. So in a way, the film is sort of a a cautionary tale for time travelers is that you might think you want to go back, but you can't have the good without the bad and and worse still in the movie. And sort of, this is my nightmare of time travel is that Eloise in the movie goes back, but she's not Marty McFly. So she can do nothing to prevent future events. Mm. She can't change the future. She can only uh, watch. And that is something that might be thrilling at first. But then when things turn bad, it's it's nightmare stuff. And it's the kind of thing that would would be my nightmare is to go back, but be unable to prevent anything. Even in your own past, obviously, lots of people have yeah. the fantasy about going back and, and changing mistakes that they've made. And it's more like, I, I think about that a lot, but it always feels like you want to do an audit He's like, I'd love to go back 20 years, but I don't want to, I don't want to redo space. That's fine. But I really want to not say that, or I don't want to do that. Yeah. And it's like, you, but you can't go back and, and even if you could go back, you couldn't go back and it would be that thing of like trying to redo the good things again would be a, a disaster. Yeah. And everything that like yeah. you try to undo that's bad would have its own kind of butterfly effect. So at a certain point, you kind of think, why am I spending so much time thinking about this? Maybe I should just try and deal with the present and the future. Or, or, or that's what I think is really interesting, because it felt to me that it was a horror, but the monster is the realities of the past and and, and, and being confronted by the realities of the past, the unromanticized realities of the past. But it also threw up kind of a really interesting 
look at where we are now, where we're having a lot of situations where we're having to decide whether we judge things on the current standard or on the standards of the past. And it's it really is this weird blurred line of what of, of what is acceptable and that almost turning that whole concept into the monster in a horror was yeah a, a beautiful thing for me so w- was it a focus to make it scary to make it uncomfortable as well as a reflection yeah i mean i think i think that was you know the kind of the sense of turning something that people think of as a dream and, and making them question it like yeah. it would seem like a dream to go back in time. But and that's been, that's, they think it's a dream because of how it's presented to us in films all the time. So it's, it's the perfect medium yeah. for it. And also it, and it's not even just film. Cause we enough, I think sort of, I think it's that there are obviously films at the time that sort of perfectly encapsulate how dark, you know, the UK was and London was, but in a way people like tend to sort of like, it's not so much romanticize that or they want to remember only certain parts of it. Mm. So in a strange way, in the opening mm. sequence, like she has on her walls in her bedroom, like there's posters for like Sweet Charity and and Breakfast at Tiffany's, which are both films, especially Breakfast at Tiffany's, actually, that like is something that's sort of become, I know they don't have Athena posters anymore, but whatever the modern. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. But it's like, there's the iconography of Audrey Hepburn as Holly Golightly. And then there's the actual content of the film and the book. And it's it seems like almost like the two things are sort of separate from each other in terms of people might dress up as, you know, Audrey Hepburn in, in Breakfast at Tiffany's for fancy dress without ever really thinking about the sort of the content of the book or the film. Yeah. And I think that's kind of interesting where things are sort of just and, and this isn't everybody, by the way, but some people I think it is that thing where you want to uh, just you want to just kind of like enjoy the surface gloss of something. And not mm. really have to think about the sort of the darker sides of things. And, and that was really the, the, the idea in a way, because I feel like, and this happens in the movie as well, that it's always interesting when you talk to people who were, who were there at the time, they obviously can't see it objectively. And also, you know, it isn't necessarily possible for them to think of just the good times. So it always feels to me that when you talk to people who are actually around at the time, sometimes they don't want to talk about it at all or they have kind of like a, a line about the sort of the time like like diana rigg for example she would talk about it at length in a quieter moment but she would sort of have this kind of line about the 60s i guess that she would say in passing like if somebody asked her about the 60s because when you ask somebody who's like on paper like the epicenter of the scene like yeah. diana rigg yeah. but diana rigg would have this line she goes Oh, I don't really remember the 60s. I was too busy shooting the Avengers. But she sort of used that as slightly the brush off. Yeah. Because yeah. I think there's a thing if like you are like one of those people who's recognized of an icon of a decade, that's a difficult thing to actually sort of be at peace with yourself. And you don't necessarily want to be only like linked to one time, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, there are bits in the movie that where um you know, I remember like when I was, I remember when I was making Hot Fuzz, I remember talking to Billy Whitelaw on the movie and I was asking her about some specific movies that she'd been in. One of which was Twisted Nerve, this, um, you know, 60s like psycho thriller that she's in. And after me, like, uh, like waffling on about it for a good 90 seconds, she eventually said, darling, darling, I don't give a shit about Twisted Nerve. <laughs> and it was just, so it's this completely anti-romantic <laughs> put down. And in a strange way, it happens a couple of times in the movies where Eloise, with that kind of puppy doggish enthusiasm, talks to somebody who was there at the time 
about their own decade and is met with a sort of like either a non-answer or a sort of a more measured response. Yeah. And I, I felt like I'd get that from my parents when I'd sort of, my obsession with the decade probably started with my parents' record collection, not dissimilar to the start of the movie because Thomason, uh, who plays Eloise, has grown up with her grandmother, played by Rita Tushingham, and has it sort of inherited her 60s record collection. And I sort of did the same with my parents' record collection where they had a box of records that were all from the 60s, but I don't remember them ever playing them or they certainly stopped playing them by the time that I was born and my brother was born. And in fact, the records seemed to stop exactly around the time that my brother was born. There were no 70s records. They were all like yeah. So before the days of the internet or like even having a portable TV in my room, I just was left to kind of obsess over these records. And then you start to build up what you think the scene is just from that. And then in a weird way, the more you talk to your parents about it, you know, the, the, the anecdotes are quite vague and don't completely add up. So you're still left with this kind of perception of what you think the decade is. So in a way that the whole movie is about, you know, myself in a way through, through Eloise kind of like sifting through perception versus reality. Yeah. There's a scene that, that beautifully, um, another scene I adored Edgar, um, that, that beautifully foreshadowed what was to come with the, the blending of past and present was when Thomason's character Eloise is l- l- listening to, to 60s music on her headphones and then a house party starts in her halls of re- re- residence and she comes out and the music in the house party is blending with the music in her headphones and it's this beautiful meshing in and out of headphones coming off and, and things like that. How was that to play with the musically and to, uh, and to show that initial kind of we're mixing things up here. It's not going to be a girl looks at the past and the past looks back and this is all together. Yeah, there was actually that particular bit was it's like the kinks are playing in a head. Yeah. And it's a Jamie XX track. And one actually that hasn't been released yet. Actually, he gave, he gave it to me. I don't think he's actually released that track. It's called it's ecstasy, I think. And I actually asked him, I said, do you mind if we just, we were going to futz with the tempo a little bit. So it syncs up with the kinks exactly. And he yeah, goes, yeah, sure. But what's interesting, the other thing that happens in that scene, which is something that like immediately after that moment is that she's in the house party. And then this, I think the character's name in the script was drunk asshole. And uh, like a a male house party guest yanks her headphones off her, puts them on and then says, why are you listening to this granny shit? How old are you? Now that particular incident was, um, is uh, based on some teenage trauma because in wow. 1990, I was at a house party for a girl called Joe, who I had a huge crush on. Hello, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> at the party, I at one point put a compilation tape on in those C90 days. Yeah. And the compilation had a, a range of different things, including uh, a kick song. I think it was Victoria. And I remember in this house party, another friend of mine, Gavin, hi, Gavin, turned around, heard the song and said, who put this old music on? <laughs> Man. And I think because it was a house party of a girl that I really fancied. I yeah. Think I was like I was like scarred forever by that. The shame and embarrassment, but then also heightened because of the excitement of thinking, I've made this tape. I want everyone to hear this great music that, that they don't know. And then the reaction is, who I put this like, granny shit on? Who put this old music on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, that's tough. Well, I mean, 
the first thing that struck me as said was the excitement of seeing Soho on the screen again. But the, 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 the second thing that struck me that I hadn't really thought about was it was great seeing you making a British film again because like, I love Baby Driver. Scott Pilgrim is an all-time favourite. So I had it hadn't really occurred to me that I'd missed you from the UK. So how was it to 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 tell a a, a UK story again? Well, I think it was it was important for me as well because I've been thinking about this film for a long time, and I, I'd even started developing it before I made The World's End or Baby Driver. And right. I guess there's a thing where you know all of my UK stuff, you know, since Back to Space had all been, you know, with, with Simon and Nick and, uh, and Jessica, of course, in space. But, but in the sense that, like, I hadn't made something in the UK that wasn't a comedy and didn't feature all of those people. Yeah. So the idea of doing something in London and a British film that was sort of with entirely new collaborators was exciting to me. And also to do something that's not a comedy. I mean, Baby Driver isn't really a comedy as well, but it has funny bits in it. And, you know, Soho has some funny bits in it, but it's not ostensibly a comedy on paper. It's, a, you know, it's something a lot darker. So that was something that I, I, I'd I, always wanted to do something like that. It was something that I felt the story was in me and sort of trying to get out and and maybe like needed to percolate longer than some others. But after doing Baby Driver and and working on that for years, and and then even when it came out, I, I sort of promoted that movie for like a year. Like it went straight from March in South by Southwest to like the following March at the Oscars, which was an incredible time. Yeah. But at the end of that, the idea of jumping straight into doing, there was a lot of pressure on me at the time to sort of jump straight into doing a sequel to that movie. Yeah. Not to say that I wouldn't do that at some point, but like I definitely didn't want to do it straight away. And I needed to kind of do something radically different. And so last night in Soho, just kind of leapt to the front of the queue in terms of this is what I should do next. And and the thing is, I think a lot of people think because I, I spent time in Los Angeles, I think sometimes people just assume that I've abandoned the UK. But the, the truth is, is that I've edited every movie that mm. I've done in London. So but Scott Pilgrim and Baby Driver were both edited in Soho. Yeah. So like my kind of like time walking the streets of Wardour and Dean Street was like it's never never gone away there's never been a movie that i've made where i haven't like you know spent an, a long time in soho as part of it yeah I, I mean i completely associate you with soho edgar like there's there's been t- t- two or three screenings i've come to at the soho hotel that aren't even your films just things that, that you're putting on and want people to, to, to come and see so that makes perfect sense to me um right now <laughs> yeah 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 that's what i thought i thought the background looked um i, I look familiar but speaking of collaborators um we also spoke earlier of box office of people coming back to the cinema all this kind of thing i'm terrible at f- figuring out if something's a low budget a mid budget a high budget and all this kind of thing but this felt small and personal and it must have been the business side of you must have been delighted as you were either mid-filming or just finishing filming or in the edit when suddenly Anya Taylor-Joy went from a really good cast member to The Queen's Gambit coming out and becoming a huge name. So obviously the personal excitement of of, of, of a collaborator blowing up, but was there also a professional excitement of one of our leads has just become a bigger lead than than when they signed on as such. It's difficult to say that because I mean, I guess in a way I'd always 
like not just I mean, I'm gonna sound like um I don't mean this to sound like a cocky or anything, but I, I'd always imagined that she would be. And yeah. it was a matter of like what the thing was that was gonna make her like a superstar. And so, you know, it wasn't a surprise to me with the Queen's Gambit. It was it was more of a matter of like when rather than if. Yeah. So, you know, but in, in a way, by the time the Queen's Gambit sort of was out, we already like had the film in the bag and I already knew what we had in her performance in the movie. So to me, it's like something like both Thomason and Anya are like, to me, are like superstars in the movie. And even I was, was going to say, Thomason as well. Me. It just felt like she's me. just going to be, just going to skyrocket because she was well, I an mean, amazing they're, performance. They're both really incredible actors in, in, in different ways. And, and that works in the movie too. And, you know, like Thomason is 18 years old um, or was oh, when we shot the movie, which is an, a, a rare and, powerful thing to kind of have an 18 year old play an 18 year old yeah and and Anya actually like I first talked to her about it three years before me and Christy Wilson Cairns had written a word of the screenplay and because I'd met her after she did the witch and I had coffee with her just like a general meeting and then I ended up telling her the entire plot of the movie <laughs> over coffee, and then she was like whoa okay and she goes I want to be in that film and then over the years I imagined her playing Eloise. And then over the years, A, seeing her in other movies and seeing her sort of like grow up on screen and B, just even just seeing her on the red carpet and in kind of fashion magazines, just being this amazing sort of chameleon that she is. I started to think, yeah, she should be the other part. She should be the Sandy part. And then as we were writing, the Sandy part actually started to sort of expand and get maybe bigger than it was in the original outline. And so then it became clear to me is that Annie should play Sandy. And and luckily when she read the script, she totally agreed. But I mean, it's funny, like I, I it didn't surprise me with the Queen's Gambit at all. Cause I just thought it's just a matter of when for this girl, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and as said, I think the performance from Thomason is amazing. R- Matt Smith, everyone. And even um I'm blanking on his name, but the young lad who was in um Attack the Block was oh, yeah, Michael Ajayo. Yes. I thought that was a wonderful little... I was like, I know this kid. I know. I, I recognise this guy. I mean, he was 10, 10 when he shot Attack the Block. Madness. Maybe he was 20 or 21 when we shot Soho. And he was somebody who came up very early on. And I was like, oh, yeah. That, I mean, he's also... he's. I mean, much like his character in the movie, he's such a sweet individual. And... um I was very pleased actually that like, <laughs> I don't want to give anything away, but like when we showed it at the London Film Festival the other day, he has two jokes about like, like London. Oh, I don't want to ruin it. But he has yeah. two jokes about London that just brought the house down. And the second one got like a round of applause. And it right. was, I was so proud um, because I think the reason it's so funny, I don't want to, I don't want to say specifically what, what the joke's about because I don't want to give it away, but it, it works so well because Michael, says it completely dead straight <laughs> like he really means it rather than yeah. a joke and uh yeah he was great like it was just it was such a sort of such a kind of great presence to have on set and also that thing where i think because him and thomason are both like pretty much the age of the characters they're playing yeah you know you're going on a journey with them like i can't i can't extricate the idea of thomason as an 18 year old coming to london to make the film 
from Eloise as an 18-year-old coming to London to sort of go to college. Like the two things seem yeah. permanently intertwined in my head. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Well, I mean, before we run out of time, I do, I do want to talk about the Sparks brothers a bit because it was another one it blew me away I was, I was kicking myself a little bit because you did hit me up asking me if I'd be up for coming and having a chat about them because I I supported them f- for two of their shows but I didn't feel I had much value to share or specific me- memories and that's why the documentary was so enjoyable to watch because there was so much that I learned about them and their eccentricities and their resilience i think more than anything was what came through their their adamance of going no here's who we are regardless of anything we're not going to bend or change or shape so yeah how was that like how did that come about and how was that to to put together well i guess it initially sort of came about because i i met them and i've been a fan for many years but they're one of those bands that like i saw for a long time sort of dipped in and out in terms of or rather they would come back into my life yeah and i'd be like oh wow sparks like I remember seeing them when I was like five years old on top of the pops and by chance, like my, my mum and dad used to buy me and my brother, those kind of cheapo K-Tel chart buster albums. Yeah. Um, like K-Tel and Ronco. And I had two different ones. They were, you know, those albums that used to have, tw- they were the precursor to now that's what I call music. And they used to have like 20 tracks, 10 on each side. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I had two different ones that had sparks on them. And that was, that was all, all I knew of sparks. And then like later sort of getting into David Bowie and Roxy Music, I'd hear some earlier Sparks tracks. And I'd be like, wow, this is the same band. And then later again in like the mid 90s, they were, you know, everywhere on TV with When Do I Get to Sing My Way? And I was thinking, wait, these are the guys from Top of the Pops 15 years ago. And you're like in a pre-internet age where you can't just kind of, you know, kids are spoiled these days by being able to go onto Wikipedia or Spotify and look at an entire discography or listen yeah. to an entire discography. But back then you would have to be a bit more of a detective to follow a band. And Sparks were one of those bands that were sometimes difficult to pin down. And I noticed actually that over the years, being a Sparks fan, I would notice that different countries, especially going between Los Angeles and London, that people would have different perceptions of Sparks. So mm-hmm. if you're in London, people would talk about Kimono, My House, or Number One in Heaven, or even the more recent stuff, like because BBC Six Music rather used to play them a lot. You go to the States and people say, oh, yeah, Sparks, Axe in My Pants, Cool Places, love all the new wave stuff. And I was thinking, well, this is interesting. They've got like two different rabid followings, yeah, different countries for different periods. And then I started to become convinced around the time I saw them doing FFS with Franz Ferdinand, which was amazing. Yeah. I just started to feel... Um, aggrieved on their behalf that there was not a documentary about them and I kept saying aloud to friends the only thing stopping Sparks from being as famous as they should be is like a documentary somebody could do an overview about Sparks and people could you know somebody could join the dots and then it was actually the director Phil Lord at a Sparks concert in 2017 he said you should do the Sparks documentary (laughs) and I was like yeah I will. As soon as he said it, as soon as he he'd essentially goaded me into doing it. Yeah. And once he'd said that I should do stop it. telling us someone should do it, just do it, Edgar. Yeah, that was basically it. And then as soon as I had then said it aloud to Ron and Russell, male themselves, yeah, then it was like a vocal contract that I couldn't go back on. It's like I'm going to make the Sparks documentary. So I sort of did it in tandem with Last Night in Soho. I, you know, in early 2018, 
I came back to London after all the Baby Driver stuff. I wrote the first draft of Soho with with Christy. And then whilst we were sort of in the knowledge that we would probably not be making it in 2018, we'd probably make it in 2019. As I was still developing the script and starting to do casting, I was like shooting the Sparks documentary. So something where the two went hand in hand and I just sort of finished filming before I started prepping last night in Soho. And then even just after finishing last night in Soho, you know, there was a few little other bits of sparks to do. Like uh, I went onto the set of Annette, the Leos Carrick's film, because when I started shooting last night in Soho, Annette had not been green lit at that point. Right. In a weird way, it kind of gave me like a nice, like ending to the movie that they actually had had a film made. So it was a rare thing. And then I was like, to go back with the pandemic is like then being able to not finish Soho, but was able to finish Sparks. And, and then it all sort of climaxed is that I had to finish both around the same time. So there was a day last year, it was like the December the 21st, 2020, where I had to tech check the final versions of Soho and Sparks the same day. And that was one of the strangest like days of my career where 10.30 in the morning, watched last night in Soho, at Dolby on Soho Square, then walk over to Technicolor at 1.30 and watch the Sparks Brothers. And at the end of that day, I was like, that is a lot of movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I've never done that before. I'm not sure. That's mind-blowing, yeah. I'm not sure it'll ever happen again, but it was it was just, you know. So so then, you know, this year, I've sort of spent pretty much the entire year promoting the two movies. And, um, yeah, you the know. timing of that. Have you, have you just as you mentioned it, have you seen Annette? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I loved it. Fucking loved it. I thought it was amazing. There's so much just as 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 you mentioned it then, it's like that opening, it's like absolute beginners again. It's it, it shouldn't work. It's so grand and so crazy, but it's it's amazing. I thought there was loads in it. I love I don't know, the Leos in general. You've seen, uh, you've seen Holy Motors, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I thought that opening L- like, Lovers yeah. on the Bridge is one of my f- f- oh, yeah. favorite films ever. So yeah, that's yeah. I- I, I I like saying the French title because it's just fun to say Les Amants de Pont Neuf. It's much better. It's beautiful. Uh, but it's funny. Um, yeah, I think the sort of the opening of Annette was like hit him trying to one up the accordion scene in Home, yeah. which is the in the uh, the accordion intermission. I remember actually. I remember I was shooting The World's End, and I don't usually go and watch other movies whilst I'm making movies. But one of the few films I saw during the making of The World's End was Holy Motors. And I remember sitting in the screen on the green in Islington and just like laughing like a drain and clapping at that accordion scene, just thinking it was like the greatest set yeah. piece I'd ever seen. Yeah, I, I love it. Well, there was l- loads in the Sparks documentary that I didn't know and that I, I learned, as you say, even if you're knowledgeable, you're knowledgeable in, in packs and in areas. But the bit that truly f- fucked me up w- wasn't even Sparks related. It was the fact that Adrian from Rocky, aka Connie from The Godfather, is Jason Schwartzman's mum. I I had no idea that this was. And then I've looked into that family tree more with Nicolas Cage. It just so I, I didn't. For some reason, I'd completely missed that this was that these were all all related. Uh, on Scott Pilgrim, when we were doing prep, we had this um, stunt training that happened for like a couple of months before the shoot. I think Michael and Mary and Ellen were in Toronto a good like eight to six weeks, six to eight weeks before we started shooting. And then some of the other cast, like Chris Evans, Brandon Routh, Jason Schwartzman all joined maybe like a month before. And everybody was training together in the morning. 
And it was one of the sort of happiest <laughs> times on any film. Cause just having like a gym session with all of those people together, yeah. Brie Larson and Kieran Culkin, Kieran Culkin wasn't even in any of the fight scenes, but he didn't want to be, him and Brie didn't want to be left out. So everybody was trained. I love it. And we used to like all train together. And I had this kind of like gym playlist. And one of the songs on the gym playlist was like the music from Rocky. Of course it was. I had at the start of it, like a bit of dialogue from Adrian going, win, win. And this track was playing (laughs) and Jason Schwartzman was standing next to me. And when, you know, Talia Shire said, win, win, he looked at me and said, that's my mom. And he goes, and I said, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's absolutely amazing. I think... He said, um, sorry, he said mom, not mom. He didn't say mom. Yeah, I I think any time you title a playlist, g- g- gym playlist, the Rocky theme automatically goes in there, like that U2 album that went automatically onto our phones. I think there's not yeah. a gym playlist that doesn't have that. <laughs> have that on there it's that one it's that one with the bells at the start you know that one yeah <laughs> i love it well before i wrap things up um still on the sparks movie did you have any trouble getting their confidence and getting their trust because they have been such curators of their image and their whole story for so long is is what came out so to then hand that over to someone must have been a big deal no, I mean, they. I think I had gotten to know them two years before I even suggested the idea. So I think it was something that because they liked my movies and they knew me and we'd become friends in that time, that it wasn't like somebody that they'd never met asking for sort of complete access. And the funny thing is the one thing that they said, which I totally respected, they said, oh, we don't really want to talk about relationships. It's just something that is like, not part of something that we ever I just think they in that sense they would rather be more enigmatic to their fans yeah. and I totally respect that and that said my favorite bits in the documentary are where little bits about affairs come kind of out and sometimes like Russell can't get through his diplomatic answer without Ron smirking yeah and a couple of the smirks they, was exactly yeah, what came to mind break and they can't quite get through their diplomatic version of events. Yeah. And those are some of my favorite bits in it. And to their absolute credit, they never asked me to cut anything like that out. And right. um, so I think, you know, they're sort of like perfectly inscrutable in a way that you're not sure whether there's something they're not sharing or whether there's nothing to share. And the fact that you don't know makes them even more mysterious. And somehow the more normal seeming they are makes them stranger and then but they like that question mark and i'm happy to let that question mark hang it was actually the thing that's at the end of the movie was my idea that came up whilst we were filming you know because we were sort of as we were going through we're just trying to find that balance of like let's tell the whole story but i'm happy for you to remain enigmatic in some quarters and we were sort of, and then I said hey what about at the end of the movie you just reel off a bunch of like bullshit facts to end the movie. And so they wrote all of those facts. And then Brilliant. the final, the final thing was my idea, which if you haven't seen the movie is, 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 a, is a great mid credits sting, <laughs> but like, but they were so up for it. And also they, you know, like the, 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 the stuff, not just the as great interviewees, but basically where I would like 
write the feed lines for them and they would write the punch lines like the f yeah when you ask questions section at the start and the stuff at the end is just like amazing at that so yeah i mean i i think they they had turned down other documentaries before and i think it was because i had known them for two years and and they they liked the idea of me doing it you know yeah they believed you as a as a as a fan and as a yeah to lead that charge well i mean speaking of of hanging question marks, I always end the podcast with asking what's ahead. And that's always the toughest thing in this industry because there's normally so much you can't talk about. I know there's talk of the Running Man f- film. Um, I've, I, I heard talk on, I think it was on another podcast, just a casual mention of Joe Cornish saying that a while back you and him were working on an idea or had an idea you were thinking about doing. What What's the plan going forward? Obviously having... A, a year or two of promoting two films you must be itching to get back to making films yeah i mean i definitely need a little break after i finished doing <laughs> like solid 10 months of press but yeah i mean the tricky thing is there's two things it's like number one the pandemic sort of knocked all the chess pieces off the board and 100%. so there, there's an element of that where going forward sort of like life priorities come into it like I think that's one of the things that's been really interesting about the lockdown is it sort of forced you to stay in one place and yeah. that, that is but that is not necessarily like a bad thing it sort of actually kind of like made me I sort of fell in love with London wholly again but then also I mean the other thing is and this is a lesson a hard lesson I learned is that having having I might even say what the name of the film is because you'll know but like I having nearly made a film and not made a film but yeah. having been in print talking about that film or even done comic-con talking about a film I'd never made I made it my I made a promise to myself never talk about a film which is not in the can ever again yeah so it's that thing like I get superstitious so in terms of like I have about four or five great things in development at the moment and other things I want to write, but it's pointless talking about them because, you know, like people are so quick to kind of just leap to some conclusion about them. I mean, I always sort of regret talking about Soho as much as I did when I was making it. I mean, very early on, I think Chris Hewitt asked me something about it from Empire and I mentioned about something in the vein of repulsion and don't look now. And I instantly regretted it because now it gets brought up in every single story about the film. Mm-hmm. And I think certainly in the case of don't look now, the, the film doesn't really bear any resemblance to that <laughs> at all. So it's that thing. And, and, you know, it's like, I'll never do that ever again, because I'm sure there are some like critics who go, how dare he put himself in the same sentence as Nicholas Rogue. So like, I kind of think uh, note to self, never mention other films ever again. Yep. <laughs> that's a good note note to have well whatever is ahead and whatever of the projects comes to the fore first i'm excited to see what what comes um and i'm glad we finally got is, i guess the honest answer is so am i like yeah. not, not not genuinely knowing exactly what is next is, is sort of a nice way to finish a press tour yeah i love that well i'm glad that we f- we finally got to sit down and have this this chat man it's been a pleasure Thanks, man. Uh, absolutely. Um, I hope it was worth the wait. 100%. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. 
There we go. That was Edgar Wright. I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. You can tell from the conversation that I ain't bullshitting when I say I really enjoyed last night in Soho. It hit perfectly with me. So go and check that out in cinemas this weekend. It's so important to support cinema now more than ever. So if you've got a cinema that you feel comfortable and safe in, you've got times of the day that you feel okay going in, you know, pandemic or whatever else considered, then get in there and do the goodness. Um, Yeah, I'll be back next week with more wonderful guests, of course. So until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.